Last Sunday night, we had a living example of the hero of a poem I want to read to you here in a moment. Most I've admitted to you that I'm recovering cowboy fan, Dallas Cowboys that is, and um, last week um, they pulled through for us again as we're used to as fans and uh, Tony Ono, oh, excuse me, Romo, um, kind of captures for us the hero of the poem. See if you don't find yourself in this. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could get but a whack at it, we'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a hoodoo while the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hugging third. Then from 5,000 throats and more than, and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dale, it pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile lit Casey's face, and when resounding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. And then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance flashed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leathered-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in a haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire, shouted someone on the stand. And it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the dun sphere flew. But Casey still ignored it. The umpire said, strike two. Fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and an echo answered, fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate, and now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. 
And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Well, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere. And somewhere hearts are right and light. And somewhere men are laughing. And somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. And Tony Romo with the game on the line throws an interception and the air leaves the stadium. I want us to find ourselves in that poem. I want you to find yourself in the Cowboys game of the other night or the game that happens later today when somebody will have the game on the line and blow their chance. I think we find ourselves there and on a number of fronts today. I want us to find ourselves here. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't know where that is, go to the book of Psalms, turn right a couple of hundred pages, maybe at most a couple of hundred, and you'll be there less than a couple of hundred most likely. But the book of Ecclesiastes now helps us as we take a step into the weeks and the months of come uh, to come. In that poem that I just read, in the Cowboys game of the other night, I I think that we find a fundamental truth about the human condition. And as we come into this whole discussion that I'm calling the chase, I want you to find yourself. It it, it is not going to be good for us or for you, ultimately, if you hear this series of sermons for somebody else. That's the way we prefer to hear sermons. It's much easier to hear it for somebody else than to take ownership in it. But as we come to these times, I want you to think about this basic truth. There is no joy in Mudville. To take that analogy and put it forward in a little different way, let me say this to us. The reason that that crowd lost its hope... Did you catch in the early part of the reason I took the time to read the whole thing? It's because it's laced with hope. There's a game going on and the goal of the game is to win. And in order for us to win, we got these two knuckleheads who are coming up to bat. We're two runs behind. We need Casey to come through. So hope springs eternal, as he says in that poem. The hope is to win. And so in that particular poem, Casey is the mechanism. We put all of our hopes in Casey that he might somehow come through for us so that we can have joy in Mudville or in Dallas land, whichever you prefer. Here's my question for you today. What are you chasing Now, I'm not going to give you the freedom to say, well, I'm not really chasing anything because I believe that all of us are chasing something in life. Where will you find the fulfillment and the meaning in your life that enables you to get up every morning when things are not going well? The question that hangs for us is, what are you chasing? And we're chasing, and if we take that poem that I just read, we're chasing joy. We're chasing a win, but the win just opens the door for us to be joyous. Probably very few of us, if we were asked today and to respond to the question, what are you chasing? Most of us would not have said joy. Now, we might have said happiness. We might have said uh, meaning in life. We might have said fulfillment. The question for you is, what are 
you chasing? Psychologists tell us, as it relates to this whole topic that I'm beginning to deal with this morning, that what we really chase in life is, they call it actualization. The basic idea for that is maybe the Hebrew term shalom, but it's that point of our lives where we understand who we are, we can embrace who we are, we accomplish all that we're able to accomplish, we are actualized, we are actually what we were created to be. That's the basic psychological idea. Well, I want us to take that idea and look at it from a couple of different angles, but especially from the angle of Scripture. What are you chasing? Where is it that you are trying to find fulfillment in life? Joy, happiness, those kinds of things. Now, I want to maybe give you a little insight. we got a couple of, uh, I guess I would call them housekeeping issues to deal with here as we begin this series. The hardest sermon for a preacher to preach typically is the intro to a whole series because you've got some housekeeping stuff you've got to deal with. And one of the housekeeping matters is Uh, that you understand why I'm choosing a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. As we come to the passage of Scripture, we'll read it in just a moment. But as we come to this, we're going to find that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes hangs a truth out here at the very outset that is negative at best. Or at least it seems that way. And really, for me, what I want us to get a hold of this morning and as we go into the next number of weeks together is this idea of the chase of our lives and what we're pursuing specifically. I've been here 18 months now, 18 months and almost a week. And so I feel like I've been here long enough now to begin to at least know where the pulse of our community is, if not begin to get my finger on it. And for 18 months, you know, I've been trying to work here at the church, but I'm also trying to get a handle on... Southeast Texas, where we live, and the people here, and how we think, and, uh, and the conditions of life here. I love it here. I'm so glad that we're here, and I praise God that y'all called us here, and uh, you know, we're just glad to be here. Uh, and one of the things that I've begun to notice about this area, I said it the first Sunday that I was here. I've noticed it even more so. There are lots of people around here. Have you figured that out? Uh, you know, I still have, you know, I have my main drags that I drive down and, you know, from A to B or to C or whatever. Uh, and there are lots of roads still that I haven't checked out, but I'm working on checking them all out. All right. Uh, so a lot of times when I'm driving, I'll be going down a road. I say, I hadn't been down that road. So I'll just turn down that road and go off. So now I've been in some pretty interesting places doing that. Uh, some of them, some of you told me later, oh, nobody should go down that road. You should never go back there. Okay. Well, You know what I find that I found the first day, but I'm still saying this. There are lots of houses up in the woods around here. Some of them are palaces, or at least from where I grew up. I mean, there's some stuff around here. Nice homes. Lots of stuff. Lots of people in those homes. Lots of families with children, young children, Median-aged children, lots of that around here. And it is a reality of our times that we have houses and communities full of people who are giving all they have to the chase without really knowing what to chase. 
We'll talk about that a little bit more before we get through this whole sermon. But that's the idea. So many people of this day and age that are selling themselves out to the pursuit to which they are applying their lives. And my concern is that they're going to say with the writer of Ecclesiastes, it's just chasing after the wind. Lots of empty people in those houses that are out there that are full. Lots of people, lots of children, lots of adults who are busy beyond busy, scheduled in their scheduling, and empty and worn out in the process. If we're going to be on a chase, let's chase the right thing. That's the whole idea of this series. And so we go to the book of Ecclesiastes. And so another point, uh, I need to get this out of the way because it's early on. And I'm going to even now start talking about the writer of the book of of Ecclesiastes. Um, Probably all of us in here have a version of the Bible that lists the title of this book as Ecclesiastes. That's the English word. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Now, some of you will recognize the Greek word ekklesia in the New Testament is the one from which we get the word church. It was an old, I mean, it was a Greek word long before we adopted it as a church people. And it meant literally an assembly or or a gathering, usually tied to the political nature of a community, just a gathering of people. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense as a title for a book unless you understand some of what this book is about. Because what we find in this is a gathering not of people but of material. It's part of the book of the Old Testament uh, genre of biblical literature that we call wisdom literature. And throughout the course of our study of the book of Hebrew, of, excuse me, of Ecclesiastes, we're going to find that this writer uses a phrase regularly, under the sun. I, I studied everything under the sun and this is my conclusion. What we find is this writer assembles and organizes information that is tied under this canopy that we call wisdom literature. Now, the reason that's important for us is because our English translation, excuse me, Ecclesiastes from the Greek word ekklesia, uh, is far different from the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament. The Hebrews have their, what they call the Bible, and in their Bible, the title of this book is Koheleth, which means, well, actually, that's part of the problem, you see. It's one of those words that they can't really understand totally, and so you get several different meanings from it. Here's the basic idea, the preacher. So what we get with just the title and the struggle that we have coming into it is that we have here a bunch of wisdom sayings that are pulled together by an individual and they're given to us in a preaching or a teaching kind of a context. In other words, the author of this book sees the data that's out there. He does a philosophical analysis of his times and of the human condition. He pulls it together, organizes it, and then teaches it to God's people. Many people will say that it's Solomon who did this. Whether it is Solomon himself or Solomonic kind of truth, the bottom line is, hear me very carefully now, the bottom line is, this is God's word. Preserved for us through the centuries. It is authoritative because of that. Whoever wrote it, God chose to preserve it for us. Therefore, we need to know what it says. 
Amen. That's a good place for an amen. All right? Now, I want you to say amen to that before I tell you what it says, because once you get into what it says, you're going to, wait, 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 wait a minute. I'm not too sure about that, preacher. So in verse 1, the writer identifies the preacher. So as I work my way through this, most of the time I'll refer to the writer as the preacher. I might say Solomon. I might say Koheleth. But most of the time I'm going to refer to him as a preacher because I'm kind of fond of preachers just as a rule. All right. So Ecclesiastes 1, let's begin to read. Amen. <laughs> the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. By the way, the reason he repeats that so many times is a Hebraic way of ramping it up. He could have just said it once, vanity of vanities, and gone on. But that's not strong enough for him. He wants it to be incredibly charged for his readers. So he says it three different times, two different ways. Vanity of vanities. By the way, the word vanity means Meaningless, empty. Isn't it great for a book to start off on such a strong high note? I don't, I rather suspect that most of our feel good preachers of these days, the ones you get on TV, uh, those guys are not going to preach out of Ecclesiastes very often because he starts off at the end of the entire search for him. His own chase leads him to say, everything makes no sense. Does that resonate with you? How are you with the realities of life? What are you chasing? The preacher offers his assistance to us at the very beginning. He wants you to know that at the, begin, at the end of his own search and the beginning of yours, here's the conclusion. Nothing makes sense. Wow, that's a summary judgment of life. This is where it's important that we kind of get a handle on the Solomon end of this thing. If you go back and check on Solomon and who he was, not just in Israeli history, but in world history, Solomon was the king's kind of king. He amassed an incredible fortune. On top of that, he was the wisest man, the scripture tells us, who ever lived. He's the one who took the advantage of his father David, brought it into the kingdom, expanded the kingdom even further, and gave them power, gave them status, gave them incredible wealth. And most scholars believe that as Solomon comes to the end of his life, he begins to pull together the pieces and his observations, his own philosophy and theology of life. And as he gathers them together... What we have are insights from somebody who's been on the pinnacle of all of life. A king's kind of king. Wealthy beyond measure. Influential in world politics. And he comes together and his assertion at the end of it all is nothing makes sense. Wow. That in itself ought to make you want to come back and hear a little bit about what he has to say beyond what he starts with. With that in mind, let me take a step or two for us. See, the reality to me is that if we get those kind of insight from somebody who's been on top of the world, 
and in the language of this message, in the chase on which he has focused, he's achieved everything. We ought to listen to what he has to say. Because he achieved levels that most of us only aspire to. He amassed wealth that many of us would die for. We ought to hear what he has to say. By the way, what he has to say as we work our way through this, I've just given you his summary judgment here. All is meaningless. Doesn't make sense. Vanity of vanities. But as we work our way through this book, we find that he says, I applied my mind to everything under the sun. For instance, amassing wealth. And he'll talk about that a little bit. And he'll talk about amassing wisdom. And he'll talk about work and how he applied himself into the business end of life. We talk about a lot of different things that he applied himself to. But what we hear from the very beginning is, it just makes no sense, this thing called life. Now, with that in mind, let's look at us a little bit. If that's him, let's look at our own chase. And specifically now, I want to kind of establish for us that you have your own and I have my own. Things that we apply ourselves to and maybe mine's a little bit like yours, but each of us have our own kind of approach to all this whole thing. This morning I got up about a little after four o'clock and uh, I was on my initial search of the day. My chase begins most days chasing caffeine. That communicate? So I got up and went and turned the coffee pot on, waiting for holy water to kind of make its way through. And uh, I flipped on the television for just a few moments. And on this particular channel, there was a kind of a, I guess, a, a documentary, expose news article, whatever they call them nowadays, from this guy named Geraldo. Now, I don't know what you think about Geraldo. I'm not even going to tell you what I think about Geraldo. Most of the time, though, I would not have watched for very long after I saw whose program it was. But something about the program on this day captured me. He was doing this news story, expanded probably for the whole hour, I'm guessing, on a modern drug abuse problem with... Oxycontin. Now, I'm not a pharmacist, but I have had some experience with pharmaceuticals. And uh, my understanding, and they actually played it out for us in that, is that Oxycontin is a, um, a not an over-the-counter drug, but a prescription-based kind of a drug. Controlled substance, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Now, here's the deal. People who are in it for the high, uh, rather than the actual intent for that drug, have found that it is highly addictive. Now, it also tends to be hard to get, and I think expensive based on what I think I was seeing. So what they do, according to the news report I was watching this morning, is if you can't get OxyContin, the next best thing to get is heroin. Now, does that put it on a level for you that you begin to get it? Now, that's the whole deal, but the real focus of his news expose was how this is rampant in our teenage population. Now, I don't tend to go into it all, but this story captured me not only because I was preaching on this and it really fit exactly with what I need to say at this point of the sermon, 
But also, again, in my own background, have some experience with drug abuse uh, and controlled substances. Now, here's what I want us to get at. Because I was watching, I kept waiting for Geraldo or whoever else was helping him with this thing to say it. And they never said it. Well, they throw the question out there. And that is a question of parents everywhere. Why does someone like my child go to do that? How can this sweet, innocent child that I've put all of my energies into for all of these years suddenly go out and start shooting up heroin? Here's what I haven't heard yet on any TV documentary. I'm coming from a personal experience. The reason people do that is because it feels good. No amens there. I didn't expect an amen at that point. That's the reality. Now, here's another reality that goes with it. It doesn't always feel good. Okay? Sin, you know, Dr. Roy Fish came, uh, said this years ago, uh, but it communicates, maybe you've heard it, sin always takes you further than you intended to go. That's drug abuse. People would never do it if it wasn't fun at some level. If it didn't feel good at some level, people would never do it. On the entry level, that's what you find. So I want to kind of take that and let's take a step with it. The reason then that you get an individual who is prone to abusing drugs is because they're chasing, that's our terminology here, they're chasing the high. They're chasing the feeling. Let me stop and I'm going to start pulling a few things together now that we've laid out on the table. There is no joy in Mudville. Why? I spent 10 minutes reading a poem. There is no joy in Mudville because Casey struck out. What are they chasing? Joy. You get joy by winning. The way you win is Casey comes to bat, but Casey blew it. Right? Hello? All right. So I'll make sure you get this all down. The mechanism was Casey. Right? The feeling, joy, was the chase. When it comes to drug abuse, the high is the goal. The mechanism is the drug. Right? All right, so let's take this a step further. That's us. And I know, uh, almost certainly... Heroin is not your drug of choice. If it is, you need to talk to me when church is over. And I'm, I'm as serious as I can be. Drug abuse is a dead-end street. There's death at the end of it. If you have a substance abuse problem, please talk to me when this service is over. The mechanism... It's the drug. But that's us. We're all chasing something. And the something in there for you has a mechanism. For Solomon, for the preacher, for the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, it's all meaningless. I've done everything. I've tried money 
as the source for me, as the mechanism to get there. I, I, I didn't find it there. So I went to wisdom and I didn't find it there. And I went to working and I didn't find it there. So all of these mechanisms towards a goal of a chase that is undefined at this point in the book. That is American society. We're chasing something. We just don't know what. So for some people, let me just, let's just cut straight to the chase now. For some of us, the drug, the mechanism that we're shooting for this feeling that we don't even know how to explain, for some of us, it's the obvious stuff like money. I don't know who was the first guy who said it. He's a pretty intelligent guy. I think it was Rockefeller or somebody like that. Massing all of these fortunes, still making money hand over fist. And somebody said, how much money is enough for you? You know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. That's always true. No matter how much you have, just a little bit more is what I'm shooting for. People in this area, not limited to this area, but certainly is this area, have a mindset that says I'm going to sell my soul to be rich. Don't even know what rich means. And so we amass stuff. That's one of the other mechanisms. The goal is some kind of a feeling out there, some kind of a fulfillment, some kind of an actualization on a uh, psychological frame point. But for us, we say the mechanism is it's not money, it's the stuff money gets me. Let's try that. So I have 18 boats, 49 four-wheelers, 18 deer leases, and 749 guns. And I'm empty. Now, by the way, none of those things are wrong. Okay? None of the stuff that I've mentioned there, money's fine. You better make peace with money. If you don't make peace with your money, it's going to handle you. I promise you that. And stuff is okay. But stuff's not going to get you to where you want to go in the chase. It's just not. Who better to tell us that than Solomon? who had all the stuff that all the money in the world could buy, and he says, it's just meaningless. It's just ridiculous how meaningless it is. Man, we ought to learn from that. Save ourselves years' worth of work. By the way, work is another one of those things that's obvious. A lot of us think that that's the answer, and so we work. <laughs> See, I don't like this part because I like to work. I like to tell you stuff that y'all do wrong, not stuff that I do wrong. See, Some of us believe that the whole mechanism to get us what we're after in life is just to work harder and harder and harder and more and more and more. And if we could work 7,000 hours a week, we'd do it because that's where we find an identity that's meaningless in the end. We look to success, status. I'm pushing for the corner office. I've had a corner office. Let me tell you something. Usually they're bigger. You know why? Because you've got to pack more problems in every one of them. But we push for that kind of stuff. And it's our chase. Some of the things that we use are maybe not quite so obvious. We get the 
money and the stuff and the homes and the extra homes and the extra stuff. And, you know, fortunately, you know, we got places like that's going to go in just on the other side of our parking lot here, another storage building, so you can store more of your stuff because your stuff is filling your house. And you're going to be empty if that's what you're chasing. But some of us don't so much go to those kind of things. We pull it down to the family level. And so we chase fulfillment in our children. Let me tell you something. i got a lot more to say about this that I'm going to save. Some of the most miserable people I know are ones who put their entire lives into their children only to find that their children grew up and had no time for them. I'm not saying you shouldn't emphasize your family life. Matter of fact, I'm saying you better. But I am saying that if that's the goal of your whole chase is to build this nice little family unit, you're going to be empty in the end. Nobody breaks the heart of a parent like a kid. And yours will do it. Because they're just like you. And it's empty in the end. And the chase is on. And at the end of it all, of all of this chasing stuff, listen to what Craig Barnes had to say. Having grown exhausted, now I supplied in the chase, he explained, oh, it fits exactly with what we're saying. Having grown exhausted, oh, by the way, Craig Barnes was the pastor at the National Presbyterian Church in uh, Washington, D.C., arguably the most powerful pulpit in all of the nation because of the lawmakers who would go through his services every Sunday. He's a seminary professor, one of the preeminent preachers in America today. He says this, Having grown exhausted in the chase, many people just give up. And they settle for busy. Let me stop for a second. Are you busy? If I asked that and honestly anybody, we'd have every hand in this place go up. Yes, we're busy. We're scheduled because we're all chasing something. And he says, and so many just give up and settle for busy. Or for comfortable distractions that numb the emptiness of their souls. In other words, they're the ones saying, it's all worthless. You know the most striking thing about this quote? Barnes gives it as a seminary professor explaining the preachers that he teaches. If the pulpits of America are filled with preachers who are chasing nothing, how in the world can our churches be what God called them to be? This is a systemic problem in our society. We're chasing after all the wrong stuff. And like those junkies, the mechanisms that we put in place fail us in the end. So is that all there is to it? Is that where the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes intends to bring us? It certainly is the first. It's the summary judgment of his entire search. So should we say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Well, he's not going to say that. You see, the search that brought him to this, the chase that brought him to this, 
pushed him to a final conclusion that we find in the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's the one that says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And he'll come back to us and bring us to this point. I want to finish this message by taking you back to the book of Genesis. What is the goal for us? If we're going to be chasing something, what should we chase? And the answer to that is found in the earliest part of the human experiment that some would call it. God calls it salvation history. The answer to the focus of your chase is in the early part of the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve, and he looked at them together, and he said, that's what I'm talking about. And we find in those early portions of Scripture that God visited with them and fellowshiped with them. They were created for fellowship with himself and with one another. But the first chase that we find in all of human history was when Eve, listening to the serpent, saw the fruit and she thought to herself, ah, that'll get me what I'm after. So she reached out and grabbed it and took down the whole human race in the process. And from her day till this day, the whole human race is in a chase. And we're buying into the serpent's lies left and right when from the very beginning it was all about relationship with our Creator. Now we know something that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes didn't know. And that is that Jesus Christ is the end of the chase. Now that's the beginning of life, but that's the end of the chase. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. God sent him For you, that chase that you're on to get more money or more stuff or more status or more prestige or more children or more whatever it happens to be, that chase will leave you lacking. It'll leave you depressed. Jesus Christ says, come to me, all who are weary. I'll give you rest. In another place, he says, I am the bread of life. In another place, he says... I come that give you life that will blow your mind. He's the end of your chase. It's a relationship that we're after. How's it going with you? So welcome to the end of the chase where you now are stuck with a decision. Will I continue the way I've been going or where I get focused correctly? Bow your heads with me and pray for just a second as we come to the close of this service. The most important time we have is what you do with what you've heard.